Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Well, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we are going to dive into Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Uh, You will definitely need your Bible because we'll be all over this text, Romans 7, starting in verse 7. But let me open us in a word of prayer. Almighty God, we confess that there is only one true God, one God, one being, one essence, and yet this God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we confess that the Trinity, the Trinity, the Trinitarian God uh, is the only true God. And we thank you, Father, for sending the Son who took on flesh, who remaining God became a man to live the life we should have lived, to die on a cross for our sins, and to be raised. And we thank you for giving us the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to convict us of sin, to uh, dwell within the regenerate and grow us in righteousness. We love you. We ask for help as we pray, as we pray, as we worship, as we sing, uh, and as we work through this text. We ask all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, I've had a bunch of different jobs outside of ministry, and one of the jobs that I've had that I was not very good at was I did medical IT sales, okay? Now, I wasn't good at this job for several reasons. One, I know nothing about medicine, nothing about the dental world. Number two, I'm not a very good salesperson. To be a good salesman, you have to be able to close a deal, and I can't do that. The doctor or whoever, the dentist, would be like, do I really need this software? And I'm like, maybe. I mean, if you want it, there are other good softwares, but this one's good too. And so I'm just not very good at closing that deal. And I know absolutely nothing about IT. All right. I still call it the internet. It's like with an S at the end. And so I was not very good at this job, uh, but I had a really kind boss, really gracious boss. And uh, one day I had to go down to a dental conference, which is exciting to nobody in here except Dr. Steve, if he's here because he's a dentist. But I had to go to this dental conference. And so uh, we were hanging out at a dental conference, which is just where people are really jazzed up about teeth. And, uh, and we've got this big screen TV at this little booth that we have, and we have some pictures of this dental software that we sold. And there are these pictures of just these really nasty teeth, really nasty smiles, the teeth are crooked, and all these kind of things, and they're just up on the screen just to advertise. And, uh, and so a dentist comes up, and he goes up to this screen, and he said, what's this software? And my, one of my coworkers said, oh, you know, this is what we do, this is our software. And he said, oh, man, these teeth are really messed up. Whose teeth are these? And my coworker just goes, oh, those are his teeth. And he points over to me, okay? At no point were these my teeth, okay? These were like 90-year-old man, silver amalgam fillings teeth. Very clearly not mine. Look at these pearly whites, all right? And so, but he just kept going with it. He's like, yeah, those are his teeth. He he doesn't take very good care of his teeth. I, I don't want him to lose the sale. So I don't say anything. I'm just like, <laughs> and I'm just smiling and covering my teeth. And he got the person. I don't know where we got these pictures. I don't know if they were his teeth. I don't know if we got them online. But the moral of the story is it's important to get the person right that you're talking about. Okay. Now, the reason I say that is because Romans 7 is notorious for trying to figure out who Paul is talking about. When you think through Romans, when you read through Romans, when you read commentaries on Romans, a huge debate within Roman scholarship is who is the Apostle Paul talking about in Romans 7 when he says the word I? Whose teeth are these? Okay, that's basically what we're trying to figure out. Now, the Apostle Paul will keep using the word I throughout chapter 7. We'll see it today, and we'll see it next week. It's the Greek word ego, which is where we get the word ego, someone who's all about the I, they're all about the self, or Freud's distinction between id, ego, and superego. So he's going to keep using this word I over and over and over again. And here's my question for you. Who is Paul talking about when he uses the word I? Now, you might say, well, Zach, it's obvious. Paul's talking about Paul. It's more complicated than that. Is he talking about Paul as a representative of other Jews? Is he talking about Paul as a believer, 
Is he talking about Paul as a non-believer? Is he talking about Paul as a general human in the lineage of Adam? What kind of Paul are we talking about? What place in Paul's history is he talking about this when he uses the word I, okay? So before we get into the text, we've got to look through this because this text is easy to understand if you get the I right, but if you get the I wrong, you'll misinterpret the entire text, okay? So everybody put on your, you know, theology pants. That was kind of weird. Hat. Whatever theology article of clothing you need, and we're going to think through this together, okay? There are several big options when it comes to who is the I in Romans 7, okay? Again, the text is not hard, but if you get who that person is wrong, you will misinterpret the text. So there are four big options, okay? These are the options up there. Number one, that the I refers to Adam, the head of humanity, that as the Apostle Paul is talking, he's trying to get you to hearken back to Adam's sin. Now, why do some people hold that view? Here's why. Look at verses 9 through 11 in this text. We're not going to throw it on the screen, but just look at Romans 7, 9 through 11. It says this, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. What some people will say is, how can that not be Adam? Where else in the Bible is someone spiritually alive They're given a command, they break it, and it brings about death. That can't just be Paul talking about Paul. He's not spiritually alive. He's born a sinner. That has to be talking about Adam. So that's what some people will say. The biggest problem with that interpretation is the entire context here is about following the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law doesn't come until Moses. Adam doesn't have the Mosaic law. In fact, when the Apostle Paul quotes one of the commandments here, he's going to quote, thou shall not covet, which is explicitly one of the Ten Commandments given at at Sinai, okay? So the interpretation that Paul here is speaking kind of in the role of Adam is probably not correct. The second one says that uh, when the Apostle Paul says the word I, he's not meaning himself at all. He's just speaking rhetorically, generically for Israel. What was it like for Israel to be under the law and to fail, okay? The biggest problem with that interpretation is it ignores all the autobiographical information in this text. The Apostle Paul is saying some pretty personal things. I'm a wretched man. I used to know what it was like for sin to well up in my members, uh, for me to want to do something and not be able to do it. And so the language is very autobiographical. So I don't think you can just say it's Israel apart from the Apostle Paul. Okay? Is everybody with me so far? Okay. Everybody take a big breath. We're doing a lot of theology. Let's keep going. A few more. Number three. This is the most common and most popular interpretation of Romans 7, and I don't think it's right. Okay? This is the view held by St. Augustine. It's the view held by the Reformers, especially Martin Luther. A lot of modern theologians, guys like John Piper, hold this view. It's that the I here refers to Paul as a believer, that this refers to Paul as his walk or in his walk of the Christian life. Okay? The reason we have a tendency to read this text as though it's about Paul the believer, Paul the Christian, is because there's something about when we read this text that rings true to us in our struggle against sin. We know what it's like to want to obey God and still struggle with sin. And so when we read this text, we kind of read our experience back onto it and say, this must be the Apostle Paul as a Christian wanting to obey God, struggling with sin. Okay? We look at passages or we look at verses like verse 15 where he says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. And we say, this must be about the Christian life. That Romans 7 must be about the Christian life because we know what it's like to struggle with sin. Paul is talking about his struggle with sin, and that must be what this text is talking about, okay? Let me give you a few problems with that interpretation, 
Okay, let me give you a few problems. The first is verses five through six say that we were released from the law and its condemnation and that sin used to work in our members. Paul will go on to say that we're under the law, under condemnation, and sin still works in our members. Verses 10 through 11 is in the past. It refers to when Paul was condemned under the Mosaic law. Look at verses 10 through 11. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. That's being under God's wrath by following the Mosaic law. Verse 14 is pretty strong. Look at verse 14. The person Paul is talking about here says that he is, quote, of the flesh sold under sin. Is that your identity as a Christian? Paul just spent all of chapter 6 saying that you're not enslaved to sin, you're enslaved to Christ. You're not your old nature, you're your new nature. Okay, that goes against everything the Apostle Paul has been saying up to this point. Verse 16 makes Paul too much of a slave to sin. Look at verses 18 through 19. It says that this person Paul's talking about can't resist sin. It says, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This text here just said that this person can't resist sin. They have to keep habitually doing this sin. That's not true of the Christian. The Christian has been freed from that, okay? Now, I get that Paul could be talking about in his flesh. In his flesh, he feels like he's a slave to sin. In his flesh, he feels like he's a sinner. The problem with that is that Romans 8, 9 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, okay, if you're a believer. Verses 7, 23, and 25 show someone struggling to keep the Mosaic law, and Paul has already said that believers are no longer under the Mosaic law. So let me say it a different way. This was the linchpin that got me to change my mind on what Romans 7 means. Ready? It's not Paul struggling to be righteous versus struggling with sin. It's the Apostle Paul struggling to keep the Mosaic law and struggling with sin. The entire context here would make no sense of a Christian because Paul has already said over and over and over again, including last week in Jeff's sermon, as the Apostle Paul was speaking through Jeff, that, uh, that we are no longer under the Mosaic law, okay? So this isn't just a Christian struggling with sin and trying to be obedient. Paul's talking about struggling with the Mosaic law, which is not something Christians are under. Have I sufficiently beat this dead horse? Because I'm going to keep going. Verse 23 says that Paul is, quote, a captive to the law of sin. That's not true of a believer. In verse 24, Paul identifies himself as a, quote, wretched man. And then maybe the strongest argument against seeing this as a believer is that in chapter 8, chapter 8 is life in the Spirit, and it is a huge contrast with chapter 7. Chapter 7 is someone failing to keep the law. Chapter 8 is all how about we can resist sin, we can be obedient, we can walk in righteousness because we have the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not mentioned at all in verses 7 through the end of this chapter. And then as soon as you get into chapter 8, he's mentioned something like 19 times, okay? So you can't just read Romans 7 in isolation. Remember, these original chapter breaks were not there. This is all one big letter. So what the Apostle Paul might be doing is the fourth view here that the I refers to Paul as an unbeliever, as a representative of lost Israelites under the Mosaic law, okay? So you have to answer the question, who is the I here? And I think the strongest case can be made to say that the I here in Romans 7 is most likely the Apostle Paul talking about when he was a Jew under the Mosaic law, okay? Now let me be very, very, very clear with you. Do we as Christians still struggle with sin, still, still feel the pull of sin in our Christian lives? Yes or no? Yes. You will, you're free from the power of sin, but you're not free from its presence. You will not be free from the presence of sin until you die. You will never come to a place where you just stop sinning altogether, okay? But that's not what this text is talking about, 
Okay, so if you heard me say that and you're like, uh-oh, I must not be a Christian because I struggle with sin. We all do. That's what Christians do, okay? Christians struggle with sin, but we repent. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, okay? But that's just not what this text is talking about. Sometimes you can have the right theology out of the wrong text. You ever heard somebody say, your body is a temple? I've heard people say that for all kinds of weird stuff. They'll use it for uh, eating McDonald's, smoking cigarettes, you know, whatever it is. And they'll say, well, you can't do that because your body's a temple. Is there a sense in which you should take care of your body? You should not only eat Doritos and Dr. Pepper like I do. Yes. Yes, you should. But that phrase, your body is a temple, comes out of 1 Corinthians, and it's talking about not sinning. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you should not sin. You should not, in context of 1 Corinthians, go to temple prostitutes because the Spirit dwells inside of you. So is it true that you should take care of your body? Sure. But what does this text originally mean? Is it true that we as Christians struggle with sin? Sure. But what is Romans 7 meaning? Okay. So which one of these views do you hold? Do you think it's Adam, Israel, Paul as a believer, or Paul as an unbeliever? Or secret answer number five. There it is. Secret answer number five is this. This is my view, by the way. The I is left ambiguous because the text is not trying to answer the question, who is the I? It's trying to answer the question, what is the relationship between the Mosaic law and sin? Why is it so hard in Romans 7 to figure out who Paul is talking about? Well, because he doesn't care about that. He's not trying to specify who the I is. Yes, it's true that he struggled against the law when he was lost. Yes, it's true in some sense he fights against sin now as a Christian, but that's not his point. His point is simply this, ready? That any time we are put under the Mosaic law because we're sinners, it leads to condemnation. It leads to condemnation. That's his only point. So to summarize everything that I've just said in a few sentences, instead of taking so much of your time, here's what it is. I think Romans 7 is not primarily talking about who the I is. It's talking about the relationship of sinners to Mosaic law. If you ask the question, who is the I, it's most likely Paul in his role as an Israelite under the Old Testament law, which he could not keep, okay? Let me give you one quote, and then we will actually get into this text. This comes from a guy named Dan Wallace. He's a uh, New Testament Greek scholar. He says this, I have struggled with this text for many years. I have held to three different views. My present view is that the apostle is speaking as universal man and is describing the experience of anyone who attempts to please God by submitting the flesh to the law. By application, this could be true of an unbeliever or a believer. The present tenses then would be gnomic, not historical, for they refer to anyone and describe something that is universally true. This view sees no shift in the person of the I of verses 7 through 13 and 14 through 25, which is a basic problem for the other views, and is able to handle verses 9, 14, and 25 under one umbrella. So as we read chapter 7 this week and next week, Keep in mind, the point is not trying to figure out who the I is. The point is, what happens to a sinner when we are placed under the Mosaic law? The law is good, but we're not, so it's bad news for us. That's what the Apostle Paul is going to get into. All right, now that we're halfway through the sermon, let's get into the text. You ready? Verse 7a. Let's start with verse 7a, first part of verse 7. What then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? What the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's going to give us a mini-theology of the Mosaic Law. What is the Mosaic Law? It's that part of the Old Testament that was given to Israel for a time that has something like 613 commands that they were supposed to follow. Those things have been fulfilled in Christ. We don't have to keep those things today because we are under the law of Christ, okay? When it comes to theology, though, and talking about the law, this is one of the biggest dividing lines among Protestants, 
What is it that causes a Presbyterian to believe one thing, a Baptist to believe something, a Lutheran to believe something, a Methodist to believe something? One of the big things that causes different views within Protestantism is how they believe the Old Testament and the New Testament go together. Do you primarily see a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Or do you primarily see a discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Okay? Jonathan Edwards, the greatest theological mind to ever come out of America, says this, There is perhaps no part of divinity attended with so much intricacy that wherein orthodox divines, that just means theologians, do so much differ as stating the precise agreement and differences between the two eras of Moses and Christ. What my boy Jonathan Edwards is saying is that uh, this is one of the biggest debates in theology. How do these two things go together? Okay, so let me explain it to you briefly because we have to understand that because this entire sermon is on the Mosaic Law. I didn't choose this. God chose that, but that was what we're talking about today. Okay, so let me give you a definition. How should Christians think about these commands, think about the Mosaic Law today? I've got a definition we're going to put up on the screen. Okay, Christians being no longer under the jurisdiction of any part of the Mosaic Law are only bound by commands mentioned in the New Testament, either explicitly or by logical implication. Okay. Now look at the second part of this definition. This is important. While no longer bound by Mosaic law, commands related to loving God and others in the Old Testament are still relevant for Christian morality today as they provide guiding principles and patterns for life and godliness. Here's what this definition means. You are under the authority of Christ. You are commanded to love God and love others. You are under the commands put forth in the New Testament. However, you don't get to take scissors to your Old Testament and just cut out three-fourths of your Bible. That Bible still shows you, your Old Testament, who God is, what He has done in Christ, what's going to happen in the future, what He hates, what He loves, okay? In the Mosaic Law, there's this command not to curse the deaf or to trip the blind. Does that mean I can go up to somebody today and trip them if they're blind because I'm not under the Mosaic Law? No. Why? Because Jesus says, wait for it, to love your neighbor. And whatever that means, it's not tripping blind people, okay? So that's how we should think of the Mosaic Law. So with that in mind, let's talk about some things that the Apostle Paul is going to say here. The Apostle Paul is going to mention five things that he wants us to know about the Mosaic Law. Five things. So if you're the kind of person that takes notes, you might want to write down those five things. Here's the first thing he wants us to know about the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law is not sinful or bad. It's not sinful or bad. Verse 7a again, he says, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. What the Apostle Paul is doing is he's responding to this charge that he somehow has uh, denigrated the uh, Mosaic Law. He somehow poo-pooed on the Mosaic Law, and he's trying to say, no, 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 hold on, listen. You are bad, and the Mosaic Law is bad news for sinners because we can't keep it, but it's great. That's when he says, may it never be. That's the phrase in Greek, may genoita. It's one of the strongest ways to negate something in Greek. Is the law bad? No, you're bad. The law's not the problem you are. The law just points out your badness, okay, and my badness. I'll give you an example. I know absolutely nothing about cars, okay? I have a few man skills. That's not a man skill that I have. So when I'm driving and on my dashboard, those little lights come on. You know those lights? It's so frustrating because it comes on, and one, I don't know what the light means, right? Do I get three wishes from a genie when this little lamp pops up? Or your tire will be low, and it'll be like parentheses and an exclamation point. And I'm like, man, my car's really excited. I've got an exclamation point on my dash. I don't know what it means. So I just take that piece of electrical tape, just cover it up, and keep driving. Right? 
And so what happens is that light comes on and I become furious because I don't know what that means. I pull over, I lift up the hood to act like I know what I'm doing. So I'll lift up the hood and I'll just be like, hmm, just kind of grunt, maybe flick some stuff. Hmm, yeah, yeah, it's probably this. And then I go into AutoZone or something and I say, hey, can you give me just kind of a heads up in what my car is doing? And they're like, well, yeah, it's probably your flux capacitor because your axle rod is a catalytic converter. And I have no idea. And I'm like, that's what I thought it was. When I was flicking my engine, what you just said is what I thought it was. And so I have no idea. So I had a buddy come over because my car had broken recently and uh, he was helping me fix the car. He knows a lot more about cars than I do. Uh, Though my favorite part of this is we lost a bolt in the engine. And so here's how we decided to get it out. We put a magnet on my finger and taped it on there, hoping that I could reach down and touch the bolt. Now, let me tell you the problem with that. Your whole engine is metal, right? So as soon as you reach your hand in there, well, that's not it. It's just the engine. That's just the engine. Doesn't work. Okay. And so I had to take it to my mechanic, a guy here named Brian, who's a uh, great mechanic to actually fix it. Now, here's the deal. Is the problem my dashboard that tells me that there's a problem? Or is the problem something within the car? It's something within the engine. I can't get mad at those lights. Those lights are just doing what the lights are supposed to do. They're saying, there's a problem here. Okay. The problem is with the engine. That's what the Mosaic Law is like. The Mosaic law is like those warning lights that says this is the holiness of God and when you break it, it flashes and you shouldn't get mad at the Mosaic law. You should get mad at you because we're all born with broken engines because of original sin. That's the first thing the Apostle Paul wants to say is that the Mosaic law is not sinful or bad. Do not be embarrassed about any part of God's word. Do not be embarrassed about the Mosaic law. Do not be embarrassed about the Old Testament. You have this in Christianity for some reason that pops up from time and time again. There was an early heretic, a guy named Marcion, who thought that the Bible was too Jewish, and so he got rid of all that Jewishy stuff, and he cut out the whole Old Testament, and he kept only a part of the Gospel of Luke and 10 letters of Paul, and that was his Bible for his heretical sect, okay? Don't do that. There is a lady who I can't stand. She's kind of a, uh, how shall I say, a blemish on the face of evangelicalism. Her name is Rachel Held Evans, and what she does, she's not a believer, what she does is she wrote a book about how she tried to follow all these Old Testament Mosaic laws that a woman had to follow. And she wrote the book basically making fun of God's Word in the Old Testament. Basically, so that everyone would see how ridiculous that is and how backwoods and how backwards that is. And what she's doing is she's writing this book, one, following laws she doesn't have to follow, two, with the intent so that she could say that women today don't have to submit to their husbands. So she's also not a very good logician. So she writes this book just saying, because it's really ridiculous today to look at all these Old Testament laws, we should just scrap all that and we should just be more progressive, okay? Don't be ashamed of God's Word. Don't be ashamed of the Old Testament. Don't be ashamed of the Mosaic Law. Let me ask you this question. This is a very revealing question. What passage of Scripture would you be embarrassed to read to just a group of lost people if you couldn't give any comment on it? You just had to step up, read a part of the Bible, and sit back down in front of a group of lost people. What would you be embarrassed to read? God's commands about the roles of men and women, something about homosexuality, something about capital punishment, something about genocide in the Old Testament. Where would you be embarrassed? That is a place you are ashamed of God's Word. That is a place you're ashamed of God's Word. 7b, he'll continue. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Here's the second thing the Apostle Paul wants to tell you about the law. Ready? that the Mosaic law tells you what is sinful. The Mosaic law tells you what is sinful. Not today. Today you can eat pork. 
Today you can do these things. You're no longer under the Mosaic law. Christ has fulfilled that for you. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is that God's word reveals sin to us. God's word tells us what is sinful. When he says here, yet, it, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, he's not saying that he wouldn't have known anything about sin. We've already seen in Romans 1 how the Apostle Paul says there are certain things you can know are sinful just from nature, right? Every culture that's ever arisen has had certain rules against murder. Some will allow you to kill for some reasons and not for others, but everyone agrees you can't just kill whoever you want, whenever you want. Why is that? Because God has put something in the heart of man that we might seek him. Every culture that's ever arisen has had certain laws about sexual ethics. Some will allow for some things that others will not, but they all agree you just can't do whatever you want, whenever you want, to whomever you want, okay? Why is that? Because there is this general sense of morality that we know. So the Apostle Paul is not saying that he couldn't know some things about what is sin. What he's saying is that when God gives his word, he makes sin more sinful. It becomes explicit. You see all these things that God requires and all these kind of things that you wouldn't just know from nature, which is why I think he uses the example of coveting. Why does he use the example of coveting? For a few reasons. Number one, coveting covers other aspects of the Mosaic law. You would not steal if you didn't covet someone else's possessions. You would not commit adultery if you didn't covet someone else's wife. So I think he's starting with this because this covers a lot of the Old Testament commands. Number two, I think that he uses coveting because it shows that it's a heart issue. Coveting wells up in your heart long before you ever actually commit the action of stealing or murdering or whatever it might be. And the third reason I think that he uses coveting is because it's something that we don't typically think of as sin. You know by nature you shouldn't murder people. You don't necessarily know by nature that you shouldn't want things that don't belong to you. And so I think that's why he uses it. It's not something we think about very often. How many times have I murdered somebody? Not very many. Notice I didn't say none, but not very many, okay? How many times have I coveted? Oh, all the time. Right now, I want Jeff's shirt. It's amazing. I don't know the thread count on that thing, but I covet, right? We do that all the time. So I think he's using that as an example to show what he's trying to prove, which is that God's revelation to us is necessary to know sin. Now, this is not the main point of the text, but before we go to verse 8, I want to mention one more thing here about verse 7, just because it's mentioned. What does it mean to covet? What does it mean to covet? It's not Paul's point. It's just an example. But because he mentions it, I want to say something about it as well. Coveting is not where you just want something. Your car breaks down and you want a new car. Or you need to move closer to work so you want a new house. Or you've got holes in your shoes so you want uh, new shoes or something like that. Coveting is where you want something that doesn't belong to you. Coveting is where you want something that belongs to somebody else. You want somebody else's house, somebody else's job, somebody else's wife. That's coveting. Coveting is where you're not thankful for the lot that God has given you in life, and you want what other people have because you don't think God is a gracious God. Let me say something just a little bit controversial. Many, many, many political issues and things that are declared to be rights are really just coveting with lipstick on. I'm not happy with the lot God has assigned to me. I want what this other person has. God, you're not gracious. Let me find a way to get it, okay? But the Apostle Paul here is going to say to not covet, and he's going to say that that was something that was shown to him from the Mosaic law, okay? Verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Here's the third thing that Paul wants you to know about the law. Ready? The third thing here is the Mosaic law excites sin. The Mosaic law excites sin. It makes sin more sinful, okay? It makes sin 
more sinful. Let me give you an example. So we want, as broken people who are sinful, we want what is forbidden. We want what we're told you cannot have. I only want Chick-fil-A on Sundays. It's the only time I want it. Why? Because I can't have it, okay? There's something about sin where it craves what you can't have. It craves something just because it's forbidden. So imagine for a second that I own, I don't know, an ice cream store, okay? Zaskin Robbins, and we have 32 flavors to crush the competition, okay? And you come in, and all these ice cream tubs are open, and you can pick. You can pick Rocky Road. You can pick mint chocolate chip. And then there's this one tub, and it doesn't have a label on it. And you say, what's that one? And I say, you can't have that one. You can have any other ice cream, but not that one. That one's just for me. Why does it have a question mark on it? I can't tell you. That one's just for me. Which ice cream do you most want to know what it is? That one. Why? Because it's the one I said you can't have. Try this if you have little kids. Put three toys in the floor and say, you can play with these two, but do not touch this one, and then walk out of the room and see what happens, okay? What we do, what, what sin does is sin wants to rebel against God. So when God says, this is how you obey me in black and white, sin says, that's specifically how I can disobey. It makes sin more sinful, okay? It makes sin more sinful, which, by the way, this is why you cannot conquer a sin by just trying to run after the thing. You have to conquer a sin by running after Christ. What you're craving when you're craving lust, for example, is not sex. A lot of married men who have wives look at pornography. What you're craving is what's forbidden. You're craving specifically what's sinful. And the way that that's solved is only through the gospel. The way that that's solved is only through the gospel. Sin loves what's forbidden. Sin loves what it cannot have, okay? Now look again at verse 8. It says this, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. What does that mean? Apart from the law, sin lies dead. It doesn't mean that sin's non-existent. That's not the idea. What it means is that it lies dormant. It, it's latent. It's ready to pounce. You don't feel its full weight. What the Mosaic law does is it turns sin into transgression. What are the differences? Sin is rebellion against God, Transgression is rebellion against a known command. It's rebellion when you know you shouldn't do it. What the Mosaic Law is, it turns sin into transgression. It makes sin more sinful. It makes sin worse. That's the idea. All transgressions are sins. Not all sins are transgressions. But what the Mosaic Law does is it turns sin into transgression. So let me give you this little applicational point before we go to the next text. Your hope in growing in holiness, your hope in being saved, your hope in any of that, is never based upon a list of rules, mosaic or otherwise. When a sinner gets a list of rules, whether it's from the mosaic law or some sort of man-made rules that we've made up for holiness, what happens is your sin wants to rebel against those rules. You are not saved by being really religious. You are not saved by keeping a checklist of do's and don'ts. Bin Laden was very religious blew up the World Trade Centers, and they found pornography on his computer, which I thought was interesting as this Muslim holy man, okay? But rather, the way that you're saved is only through Christ. It's only through the gospel. When a sinner is given rules from God, the sinner wants with all his might to rebel against God. So our only hope is that there's someone who can keep the law on our behalf. There's somebody who is born without sin, fully human, fully God, who can save us because only God can save and who can represent us because it's humanity that needs representing the God-man Jesus, which is also why when you're raising kids, you better not make Christianity just about a checklist of do's and don'ts. Yes, you give your kids rules. Please give your kids rules. Please don't go out to dinner with me and not have kids that have rules. 
But as you're giving them rules, you need to let them know Christianity is not about that. Christianity is about a savior. Christianity is about the gospel. Christianity is about someone who kept the rules because you and I can't. Okay? Verses 9 through 11. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Here's the fourth thing the Apostle Paul wants to say about the law. Ready? The Mosaic law brings about death. The Mosaic law brings about death. Okay? If you could keep it, it would bring about life. It brings about life in the sense that Christ keeps it for you. But for a broken sinner, it only brings about death. Now, a few questions. What does verse 9 mean here when it says this? For I was once alive apart from the law. Okay? That's not the Apostle Paul saying he was sinless. He's born broken and sinful. He's already clarified that all humanity is born broken and sinful. Go back and read Romans chapter 3 if you don't believe me. What he's saying is when the law came, he got to see how sinful he was. Doug Moo, a New Testament scholar, says this about what does it mean Paul saying that he was alive apart from the law. He says, Though I had sinned and was condemned before the law came, the coming of the commandment gave sin greater power and destructiveness than ever before, making me fully and personally responsible for my sin. The coming of the law brought to me then not life but death, i.e., I died. Okay? That the law brings about death. As God is telling the Israelites, giving the commands not to make idols, as the Ten Commandments are being given, what are the Israelites doing? Worshiping idols, worshiping this golden calf, right? As the command's being given, they're breaking it. That's the nature of the sinful human heart. Now, what does it mean when it says here that uh, verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me? It doesn't mean that God's word is deceptive. It doesn't mean God's word lies or something like that. By saying it deceives me, what he means is this, that the apostle Paul thought that the law led to life, but really it led to death because he couldn't keep it. It only deceives you if you think that the goal of the Mosaic law is for you by yourself in your own strength to keep it. Then it leads to death. I'm sorry, yes. Uh, then it, you, <clears throat> Let me start over because I think I just blanked out up here for a second. I passed out for three seconds. What I'm trying to say is that uh, the law deceives you if you think that it is this ladder that you climb up to earn your way to God. Really what the law does is it condemns you and it shows you that you need a savior, okay? So let me ask it this way. What is the purpose of the Mosaic law? What is the, why did God give the Mosaic law to Israel or to us? Listen, this is important. It's not so that you can keep it and earn your salvation. It wasn't for Israel to keep and earn their salvation. Right after God gives part of the law, he gives a way to make atonement for when you fail to keep the law. Listen, the point of the Mosaic law was to condemn you and me. It was to show you how sinful you are, that when God gives a command, everything inside you rushes up and says, I want to break that. That is meant to make you fall on your face and realize you need a Savior. The Mosaic law was given to show you that you can't keep the law and therefore you need salvation, you need mercy, you need forgiveness, you need atonement. The law was always given to point you to Christ. Jesus says that on the road to Emmaus. All these texts were actually about me. He's the one that in him we find all the promises of God are yes and amen. All this was about Christ. The Mosaic law was given to condemn you so that you might cry out for a Savior. As uh, St. Augustine would say, God commands what we cannot do that we may know what we ought to seek from him. God commands what we cannot do, 
that we may know what we ought to seek from him. Verse 12, we're almost done. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Here's the fifth thing the Apostle Paul wants to say about the law. The Mosaic law was perfect. The Mosaic law was perfect. We're not bound by it anymore. The Apostle Paul in Galatians will say it was like a babysitter. When you're a kid, you need a babysitter. There's nothing wrong with the babysitter. Babysitters are great people, okay? But when you become 30, having a babysitter is weird, okay? The Mosaic law is like that. It's great when Israel was a child. That's the idea. It's great. There's nothing wrong with it, just like there's nothing wrong with the babysitter. But when Christ comes, to go back to the babysitter is seen as very, very strange. Very, very strange, okay? But what you need to see here is that the Mosaic law is perfect. The problem is never with God's Word. The problem is always with us. We have a tendency to want to bend the Bible around views that we already hold, right? So if somebody is a Republican, they'll say it's more Republican. If someone's a Democrat, they'll say it's Democrat. If someone's a feminist, all of a sudden Jesus is a feminist. Whatever it is, they will just take wherever they already stand and try to bend the Bible around their personality, and you have to do the opposite. The Bible is unyielding. The Bible is firm, and you have to bend yourself around that. It's the standard. It's the norma normans non normata, as the Reformation would, would call it. The norm of norms which is not normed. It's the thing that critiques everything else and is critiqued by nothing else. There are no authorities over God's Word. There are no authorities over the Scriptures. You can't say that the Bible is true because this history textbook says it is, because then you've put the history book above the Bible. Or you can't say the Bible's true here because the science textbook is, because then you've put that science book above the Bible, okay? The Bible is the standard. It's the starting point. It's where we begin. It's a presupposition that we hold. If the Bible told me that the sky was red, I would walk outside, look up, see that the sky looked blue, and say, I must be colorblind. I must be colorblind. The problem has to be with me. The problem has to be with my eyes. The problem's not with Scripture. It's the starting point. So what Paul wants to say is, though you're not under the Mosaic law, and though for sinners it leads to death, don't think for a second that it's not the Word of God, though. Don't think for a second that it's not holy, that it's not righteous, that it's not good. God is beyond our critique. God is beyond our critique. What He does is beyond our critique. Who He is is beyond our critique. What He decides to do in our kids, our marriage, our lives is beyond our critique. What court do you take God to? You have to appeal to His Word to even try to critique Him. God, you shouldn't have done this because of this. He's like, what are you referring to? The book I wrote? Right? So I want to end with this today, because this is a text. Last week, Jeff basically said we're not under the Mosaic Law. This week, we're saying, Paul is saying, here was the purpose of the law. Next week, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about what life was like under the Mosaic Law as an unregenerate Israelite, okay? So what does this have to do with today? Well, let me give you the gospel. Christianity is unlike other religions. Christianity is not if you're more good than bad, then you get to go to heaven, or if you're more bad than good, then you go to hell. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a group of everyone on their way to hell, unless they put their faith in Christ, the God-man, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the only person to follow all of the Mosaic law correctly. The Mosaic law to us leads to death because we can't keep it, but Jesus crushed it, all right? He followed all those commands, even commands he didn't really need to do. Did he offer sacrifices still? Yeah, but he didn't need to to cover his own sin. Did he get baptized by John the Baptist still? Yeah, but why did he do it? To fulfill all righteousness. He doesn't need to do that, but he's identifying with sinful humanity, and he's doing what we should have done. He's living the life we should have lived. So my question to you is this. Are you trusting in him? Are you trusting in him alone? Have you put your hope in God, 
Or are you thinking that maybe you can keep some of these rules to make God like you? And I mean this whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. If you're a non-Christian, you're here to become a Christian. What does God want from me? He wants you to love and trust Jesus. That's what he wants. If you're wondering, what is the meaning of life? Jesus. That's it. Okay? If you already are a Christian, here's what you need to hear. In growing in your holiness, growing in your righteousness, you will not do so through just trying to keep more rules. It doesn't work that way. That doesn't work for broken sinners. The way that you will grow in holiness is by going back to the fact that there is someone who has kept the rules for you, that there is someone who has lived righteously for you, that someone has taken your penalty and the wrath of God for you, that someone has been raised showing that he's victorious, okay? Showing that he's victorious. The way that you grow in holiness is the same way you got saved, by going to the gospel, by resting in Christ. Yes, there are rules in the Christian life, but they come as a result of loving and trusting Christ, not a prerequisite to loving and trusting Christ. So with that in mind, as the uh, volunteers are helping serve communion, if you guys would go ahead and come on forward while we pray. God, I confess that this is a uh, kind of a strange text. It's just a text about certain things about the Mosaic Law, which to some of us might seem kind of uh, irrelevant or might seem strange or something like that. And so I thank you that we read this through a New Testament lens, that we read this through a a cross-shaped lens that we read this through a Christocentric lens. We ask that you would bless this time as we uh, remember the gospel in communion, that we've just gotten to hear the gospel, and now we get a chance to be reminded of it uh, through taste. And so we love you. We thank you. We ask that you would send the Spirit to encourage our hearts and to bless this time. In Christ's name, amen.